data center fabrics seem like they've been talked to death in the networking industry for the last several years. Lots of products, some protocol work, various reference models scaling out, oversubscription ratios, pod interconnectivity. Layer 2 models, yeah, they're over. Layer 3 models are the norm. Layer 2 in an overlay if you want. Hey, we've got intent-based networking that's going to stand up a data center fabric for you. We've had an explosion in network operating system choices that can be paired with a variety of white box platforms running on Merchant Silicon with an increasingly impressive forwarding capacity. We even know how to build three, five, and even seven-stage leaf-spine fabrics. We can handle standing up and tearing down new pods and interconnecting them with the other pods. We can run processes and containers isolate them from one another and create exactly the forwarding environment we need with a mix and match approach. It seems like we got this data center fabric thing nailed, but do we? And the answer to that question is complicated. Maybe we have the capabilities, but we don't have the operations. Maybe we can scale out, but we aren't so good at visibility. Maybe we can do ECMP really well, but troubleshooting gray failures, that's a struggle. What's going on here? Why is building a massive fabric almost a trivial exercise? Well, operating that fabric is not. Our sponsor today is Nokia. Now, maybe you're of the Cisco Juniper Arista mindset, and so maybe Nokia isn't top of mind for you, but perhaps they should be. Nokia has been a mainstay in IP networking for a very long time and have thought deeply about the challenge of operating data center fabrics, and they're here to explain to us what they've built and why it will improve the lives of networkers. In today's discussion, we're going to cover Nokia's SR Linux and Fabric Services platform. These products are key to helping improve your data center fabric operations. And joining us today is Steve Vogelsgang, CTO for IP and Optical Networks at Nokia. I'm Ethan Banks, and with me is Greg Farrow, your heavy networking podcast co-host for over 10 years running here on the Packet Pushers Podcast Network. And welcome to you, Steve. Let's jump right into this conversation. Man, with all the data center activity out there, all the different fabric products that exist, why is Nokia entering the data center switching market? Maybe to get started, it's worthwhile just touching a bit on how Nokia got into the routing business, uh, because we see some parallels to those times, uh, what's happening in data center networking today. Uh, If you go back a few years, uh, we entered the routing business, really cut our teeth on something we called service routing. Uh, And this was back in, you know, mid 2000s, where most of the big service provider networks, you still had these sort of silos where they had business services on one network. They had their residential services on another network. If you wanted to do something like video, you need very specialized infrastructure for that. And all that needed to come together on an IP network. And we tackled that problem with a new generation of routers we called service routers. So you know, that got us started in the IP business. And then over the years, we've, we've been building and expanding upon that, becoming a very strong player on the IP networking market. And that sort of led us into a lot of discussions about data centers, both with the big CSPs that we work with uh, as they started their journey toward telco cloud. Uh, Data centers started to become a very important part of their infrastructure, but also in discussions with some of the hyperscalers or web scalers, whatever you want to call them, the huge cloud providers that were building monster data centers. And in those discussions, what we discovered is that as you mentioned, sure, they built these massive fabrics, um, had built all the tools for that. But what we heard from the web scalers is that when they got started on their journey, you know, this is maybe 10 years ago when they really started scaling, there really wasn't a solution in the market that did what they needed. They couldn't buy a, a data center switch that was programmable, that could integrate into their DevOps tool chains that they had been building. Uh, and in many cases, they just decided, you know what, let's just build our own OS. Let's go get the hardware. 
we'll build our own OS. That's the only way to get the software tools that we needed. And as we uh, expanded that thought process to all the other data centers that are being built, not by the big, huge web scalers, but by telcos, by enterprises, by tier two uh, cloud providers, we heard the same story coming back that they still can't get what they need from a data center switching solution. So we saw that as an opportunity uh, to introduce something here that, that tackles that problem. I think it's also interesting that IP switching, if you like, or routing switching, whatever you want to call it these days, is not just about being in the data center. It's in a lot of places, but still the real challenge is getting a fabric in the enterprise data center that actually does what you want, right? You know, we are seeing the wireless broadband, the IPTV, the 5G, but there's still data center switching. Are you saying that 5G edge locations are data centers as well as enterprise data centers, or do you separate the two? Yeah, well, absolutely. There is a need for compute to be distributed in more locations as we look at the industrial applications that 5G is enabling. If you think of 5G and industrial IoT, as we call it, uh, one of the big thrusts is we're shifting from compute that's largely been deployed to provide applications facing toward humans, whether it's entertainment, whether it's you know business workflows for human beings. And with industrial IoT and AI, what we're seeing is that the compute is now geared toward automation driven by machines. And where those machines are located, they often need compute that's nearby to run some of those workloads. Uh, and so we're seeing data centers pop up all over the place. And that's that's one mm-hmm. of the big challenges. If you want to manage that type of complexity, you've got to have automation. Uh, And the data center fabric itself needs to become a seamless part of the compute environment. And that's the piece that's been missing. Yeah. And a big part of what we'll talk about today is SR Linux, which is your network operating system that you're promoting. But a key part of this is we go from most companies having a couple of data centers, which is where their apps work. And then the edge of the network was usually fairly passive, fairly low sophistication, And now we're seeing a substantial transition where the industry is changing, where the data center in the core of the network is now being distributed out to the edge. So if you're a telco, you used to have major pops in each town and all the telephone cables basically went back to the exchange. Well, now we're actually putting them on the end of the street. And so we're seeing more data centers doing more stuff in more places. To me, it's a real operations challenge to be able to bring them together. The legacy operating systems of 10 years ago aren't fit for this new way of working. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, we've done a lot of work with the telco applications themselves, moving them first to virtualization. Now we're moving them into containers. And the the thrust behind these efforts is, is to really get to a DevOps type management of, of those applications, thinking of telecoms infrastructure as applications more so. We recognize that in the data center, you've already got those DevOps tools managing the servers. Why can't we use those tools to manage the switches? And that's sort of been a disconnect that we've seen. We have something we call NetOps. We'll talk a bit more about it as we go here. Uh, But NetOps is really sort of bridging that gap between how we operate servers and how we need to operate the network. Steve, you mentioned in in the the setup pitch here repeatedly that different of the operators that you've talked to, they, they can't get what they need in their network operating system running their data center fabrics. And we've been talking about automation. You've mentioned DevOps and so on. Is that what you're talking about? They can't get what they need because because they can't interact with those devices and get them configured and monitored, et cetera, in the way that they need to be able to do it? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. You know, you mentioned intent-based networking. If you think about what that really means, what that really means is I want a model-driven programmatic approach to managing and operating the network. Um, and to do that, 
it, it has to really be inherently model driven. You know, what has happened in a lot of cases is you took an OS um, and sort of bolted on the side some notion of, of modeling that would allow a interface, a NetConf interface using Yang models and those sorts of things. But when it hits the OS, you're sort of tearing that apart and then trying to program the systems in a completely different way. And so when we built SR Linux, we had to really, to be honest, it was a luxury. We hadn't been in the data center space uh, and just entering as a new player, we had the option to start from a clean sheet of paper <laughs> and we yeah. built a, a, you know, starting with Linux and said, okay, how do we get the most out of Linux uh, and keep it completely open, completely programmable and inherently model driven? And that's the OS that we ended up building. Okay. You just said something really important here because in my mind, I've been going, Steve hasn't told me anything new in, in the sense that we've got models, we've got ways to do DevOps, we've got ways to do automation, but there's a difference you, you've highlighted here. Bolt-on of my legacy NOS that I've been running for years, and now I get model stuff bolted on, which is doing some kind of translation in the back end, et cetera, versus building SR Linux from scratch and now creating something that is inherently model-driven. That's the differentiator, and that matters. Yeah, it matters uh, significantly. And, you know, what, one of the things that we enable in SR Linux is uh, third-party apps and third-party apps that run as first-class citizens alongside the apps that we package with SR Linux, which I, I should probably touch a bit on the apps that we package with it because that's a, a key part of the value prop as well. But because it's inherently model-driven and we've exposed the OS in a completely open way, when you build an app for SR Linux, it becomes part of the config tree and can utilize all of the tools in the system. So telemetry, um, all the configuration tools, the CLI, all of that becomes available to your app. And that's never been done, right? The, the cases where you could program a switch, you kind of have your app that would run on the same OS as a process, but it would have this interface into the actual network operating system that was very limited. So when you want to go and say, well, now I need to configure my app, you've got to go write your own CLI for your app. It has nothing to do with the main switch CLI. So we said, that doesn't work. We have to make this thing completely open. Uh, and by being model-driven, it makes it quite easy to do that. We just expose the model. Mm -hmm. um, you know, The config tree gets extended to whatever you want to do. Uh, and so it really makes it a very nice environment. I do think we jumped ahead just a little bit, Steve, because we started talking about SR Linux, but we didn't give people the background of what this actually is. So in the networking space, there are several different Linuxes that have come and gone with various functions in the networking stack. So SR Linux specifically, inherently model-driven, we've got a config tree, we can extend it, et cetera. But what, what is it? Is it a full-blown NOS? Is it just a platform upon which I can run networking services? Give us the lowdown. So SR Linux is a full-blown NOS that packages a bunch of our, we call them foundational technologies. It's basically the applications that we've built uh, for the large IP networks, the service routing capabilities, you know, our BGP. So you get all of our routing protocols, BGP, um, IGP protocols, um, all that stuff built in, all of the features and functionality that we built over the years, but they're packaged instead of a monolithic set of software they're now packaged as applications that run when you need them. It only runs what you need. So if you aren't using BGP, BGP won't start. If you configure BGP in the config tree, BGP will start. That is really interesting to me because in the last six weeks, we've seen problems with major vendors where 20-year-old routing protocols like DVMRP have been used to create memory leaks and to take routers down off the network. And it's actively a live exploit. So 
this ability to actually disable the things that you don't need is actually way more important than most people think because of that. Because if you just have all these services running, they become vulnerabilities, not just for external threats, but also sometimes they just die and take the whole box with it, right? Yeah, that's that's a possibility. Now, of course, we like to think our applications are very robust and they, and they are, but that was part of the feedback that we heard is that one of the things you want to try to do is streamline the OS and streamline the set of features that you're enabling. Um, a lot of people think about more features, as you say, more vulnerabilities, potentially more bugs that get exposed. And you mentioned something, you said, you know, shutting down the things you don't use. We sort of took the opposite approach and we basically said, well, let's just use the config tree. If you've configured it in the config tree, it will start. If you haven't, it will never start the process. This is sort of taking an adversarial approach. You've developed this from the ground up. You could take the view that if you've done this from the ground up, it's not well tested. So there are other vendors in the networking space who let the customers do the testing. That's what they say. They say, we ship the product fast, we ship it early. And when the customers stop reporting bugs, that's how we regard it as bug-free. What's your approach to locating, you know, testing your code, validating that your product has some level of quality and, and, and that sort of stuff? The foundational technologies here, the routing protocol stack, you know, all of the key capabilities are ported from our SROS operating system. That's got countless millions of hours of, of testing applied to it. So the foundational technologies are proven. They're robust. The SR Linux environment, one of the nice things about the way we built this environment is, and we actually will talk about this in automation tools that we provide, which we call FSP or Fabric Services Platform. We actually can build a simulated environment in containers to run massive amounts of automated testing. So you can get a huge number of test hours on the code by doing that. Uh, it's something we call digital sandbox or it's called a digital twin. But the, the basic idea is we utilize a enormous amount of automated testing um, on this code. And it's it's been proven to be incredibly robust. So the things that are sort of from the ground up, well, it's Linux. That's pretty proven and robust. Uh, and so we're building on top of that with a set of proven and robust applications. Right. So some of the core apps have been cross-ported from SROS, which is your long-standing operating system. It's a traditional OS, I guess you'd like to call it. It's sort of a, a traditional approach and one that's been in development for decades. And you've adapted them to this new service routing Linux platform so that we know where we're at, rather than completely start from zero, in effect. Correct. Correct. Right. So, Steve, you mentioned something about uh, about a digital twin um, and being able to do testing and so on. Can you dive into that a bit? That's really interesting to me. I hope you tell me what I want to hear here, because being able to test and model your network before putting into production has been a big problem for a long time. It sounds like you're on to something there. Can you talk about that some more? Yeah. So the, the other piece of the puzzle in building these data center fabrics and operating them over the time is the, the software tool set that runs not on the switches themselves, uh, but sort of think of it as sort of an SDN layer, network management layer that are the tools that you use to automate the network and make sure that the configs are correct. In the case of the big web scalers, they built all those tools themselves, right? They had all that stuff. Um, they'd built it for the servers. They wanted to extend it to the network. But when you get into the tier two cloud providers, the the telcos and others, they don't, they don't necessarily have those tools. So we built those tools. Uh, and something we call the Fabric Services Platform. Um, and it, you mentioned intent-based. It's an intent-based software solution. Intent-based really means code-driven. So it, you're writing code that represents the intent of what you want reflected in the configuration of the network. And what FSP does is, is 
something we call a digital sandbox. Uh, so it allows you when you're designing the network. So the first thing is that it has a set of, of templates that make it really easy. So as you described in, in the intro, you know, leaf spine fabric, one tier, two tier, three tier, however many tiers you need. Um, there's templates within FSP for all those basic designs. You can enter the parameters you want. You also mentioned things like over subscription ratios, how many servers, what kind of server interfaces. You put all that into the tool, you push a button and it will automatically generate uh, the configs for the network. But what's really cool is it can take those configs and instantiate a digital twin of the network in the digital sandbox, install those configs and actually turn up a network that has the actual protocols running. So you can now go into that. Um, you can run tests against it. You can inject traffic into that network. There's a simulated forwarding plane as well. Uh, and basically validate that your network design is going to deliver what you need it to deliver before you ever roll those configs out into the network. So it's not um, like doing a virtual route forwarding instance and installing it on your production environment. It's actually off to the side in some sort of a lab server or something like that. So you can see what you've got. Yeah, correct. It, it will run in a Kubernetes cluster. So we'll we'll spin up a bunch of containers, you know, that reflect the switches that you have in your network. We'll plumb up a data plane. Granted, it's a software data plane instantiate all the routing protocols. So it's actually running the routing protocols, dynamically building the FIBs, doing all the same exact things that would happen in the network. Uh, and you can use that as an environment to, to run your automated tests as part of your CICD toolchain. Um, so if you're using Jenkins or something like that to manage your servers and ensure configs are correct, you can extend that now into the network in a way you would never be able to do before. There's always people that are going to criticize the difference between doing software that is simulated in an environment, which is effectively what's happening here, versus running it on actual hardware, because sometimes ASICs do things, and, and so there's subtle differences in production in our sandbox versus reality. But I think what, what we're saying here, because of the way that this runs and what these processes are, I can validate actually a couple of things. One, I can stand up my network topology as I... I'm going to stand it up and validate that that's all happening, the stuff that we've been doing for a long time. But also, my automation workflow and processes can be validated as well. And as those increase in, in complexity, like you said, CICD tool chain, when we say those words, there, there's a few syllables that represent a long, complex thing but that's happening potentially before something goes into production. So being able to prove all that out is a big deal and being able to do it off to the side is uh, is a pretty important feature and function. Yeah, we think so. And it's it's the feedback we got in talking to network builders, you know, across the globe that it's something that they're moving toward. They're not quite there yet. And it's a challenge. If you have to figure this all out yourself um, and you're using software from your networking vendors that aren't built for this environment, uh, it can be clunky and difficult. Uh, and so, we decided, hey, let's do this in the right way um, as if we're mm. starting with that environment. So FSP is an example. It, it's built on Kubernetes. So it runs on a Kubernetes cluster. Um, it's leveraging the same sort of tools that you will have for your web applications, you know, databases, graphing tools, user interface tools, very much of that heavy use of open source. So, you know, a lot of the same stuff that, you know, you as a web builder will be building inside of your web applications. We're now extending that into the network. So these lines between the network and the actual applications and workloads, you know, start to blur. I love that we're using Kubernetes now because 20, 15 years ago, I had to know all about Java Tomcat to make network management tools work. <laughs> so I had to be able to install it because <laughs> yeah. the apps were always these horrible Java things. And it used to be, and now it's Kubernetes, which uh, for all of its problems is slightly better. 
than a than the Java system. I, one of the things that I think, um, Ethan, that we didn't call out about the Fabric Services platform is the software-defined infrastructure tool. So you take your devices, which are running SR Linux, and most people actually don't buy switches alone anymore. They don't buy them and put them in and plug them in and go, yay, IP routing, thumbs up, CLI configuration. What they really do is go and buy some sort of software then to operate it so that you can do code updates, telemetry configuration, you know, all that sort of stuff. So what we're really talking about here in the Fabric Services platform is the software-defined infrastructure piece that operates SR Linux. And in effect, it's the, you know, the levers, pulls the levers on the SR Linux. Yeah, I'm nodding my head here, Greg, because Steve, that's exactly what I wanted to dive into with you. You said intent-based, you said code-driven network automation. And that's what I'm uh, assuming we're talking about is exactly what Greg said here, that I'm using... FSP, Fabric Services Platform, to get this network stood up without me having to actually dive into individual devices and do things at the command line. Is that right? Or can you clarify how that works? Yeah, that's exactly right. It's exactly what it's doing. It will generate all of the configs that you need in the network, You know, push those to the devices, monitor the devices for any config changes. So look, the CLI is a real part of network operations. It's not going away. Um, in fact, I, I want to touch upon some of the cool stuff we've done in the CLI on SR Linux as well. But um, mm. so, you know, if there's configuration changes on, on FSP console, it's going to show you, hey, somebody went in and changed the configuration on one of your switches or on multiple switches. Do you want to keep that config change or do you want to back it to the, you know, the, the config that you were expecting? Um, so it monitors all of that on an ongoing basis uh, as well to make sure the configs are always consistent and always reflect uh, the design that you want. Then that means when I'm in Fabric Services platform and I'm doing the intent-based thing, I've got some number of models that uh, FSP is going to support to allow me to configure the network to do, well, we talked about earlier about uh, various number of leaf spine. You said one, two, or three stages supported there. Is it like BGP EVPN is what's happening? Are there other sorts of uh, models that I can push down into the network? Yeah, so there's a, a lot of options in the, the basic templates that we provide. Uh, but you you hit on something there mentioning uh, EVPN, which is another key f- capability of FSP, which is then tying into the workloads that are running uh, across the network that may have specific demands. So you're likely to have workloads that you know, want maybe different IP address space, you know, 5G network slicing is a, a prime example where I've got a collection of VNFs or, or CNFs that, you know, are building an actual network for a customer. Um, I need that on separate address space. So I need an EVPN overlay um, within the network to support a model like that. Um, it could also be just you, you want a, something that can control resources in the network, whether it's I need low latency, I'm doing you know huge file transfers, or I need to turn on uh, flow control for, say, some RDMA or something like that. Um, and so that's another thing that FSP will manage is understanding those workflows um, and understanding the networking requirements and then reflecting the configurations. Typically, this will be done via EVPNs uh, that are required mm. in the network to, to deliver the SLAs that those workloads require, essentially. I'm laughing because you just said that all so calmly. And I'm thinking about just the <laughs> mountains of configuration you'd have to punch into the switches to make all of that happen. <laughs> yeah. It was a stream of marketing, Ethan. It just washed over. <laughs> so, and, man, it's not marketing. You know, this like, stuff is real. Let's break it down a little bit. So what you're hey, saying is you've literally got a, a software tool that configures EVPN, but it also does MPLS, I think, does it? 
Well, eVPN utilizes MPLS, right? That's the yeah. you know, encapsulations that are being used for eVPN. Uh, but it, it, it's not just configuring the topology for the eVPN. It's also configuring service parameters, right? In terms of QoS priorities, you know, flow control, enabling things like flow control. Mm-hmm. Granted, in a data center environment, you don't have quite the breadth of capabilities that we would have, say, in a service provider you know, service network. Uh, but there are there are capabilities in these switches and they do become important when you're trying to manage a bunch of workloads that have uh, intense networking requirements. Mm. Mm. Dealing with microbursts, dealing with noisy neighbors, potentially. Like you said, talk about network slicing a little bit ago where that might be a kind of a big deal. Well, exactly. in, in most exactly. enterprise data centers, it's in cast where the IP storage arrays sit. They usually get overloaded. Everything runs at 10%, except for where the storage is, which runs hot and drops packets in an incast. That's usually the biggest problem. Yep. And depending on how you're doing the storage, if you're doing something like RDMA, I mean, RDMA requires flow control to be enabled. And so we can take care of that for you. So, you know, you can say, look, here's an eVPN. It's for RDMA or storage. uh, And we'll make sure we get the right parameters set across that uh, particular network slice. What about telemetry? Now, a big thing that we see with most of these software-defined infrastructure pieces is that visibility is is often built in. Am I going to be able to see what's happening in my fabric as part of your solution? Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the, the sort of ongoing, we call it day two uh, functions of FSP. We kind of break it into day zero, day one. Day zero is design, day one is deploy. Um, day two is the ongoing operation. Streaming telemetry is a big part of that. So mm-hmm. FSP has a time series database that is basically syncing all of the streaming telemetry that comes out of SR Linux. Um, and you can turn on pretty much anything that you want within SR Linux uh, and enable it as streaming telemetry you know, via GNMI interface. Uh, and that will come into FSP, put into a time series database. And then there's a bunch of tools to monitor, analyze, you know, set thresholds, basically determine when something is, is not performing um, as planned. And you need to then either raise an alarm or potentially trigger an automation that will make changes uh, as needed. No, wait a minute. You, you said I can turn on pretty much anything I want as streaming telemetry. But what does that mean? You've got all the Yang models there. And so assuming the model in question is there, I can turn it on? Or did you mean something else? Of course, it has to be something that is implemented in the software. Um, but basically inside of the SR Linux, there's a, it's basically a PubSub database. So all of the state of the protocols, all of the counters, whether it's uh, you know interface counters, QoS counters, you name it, is all available via that database. So when you when you enable streaming telemetry, you're just basically saying here are the you know the portions of that database that I want to stream, the the rate at which I want to stream it, and so you can get access okay. to whatever information you want. And by the way, one of the cool things, sorry, I get excited about this stuff as you can see. <laughs> um, Telemetry. People get into their stuff. It's it's much more fun that way. Yeah, uh, it's geeky. This is what this is a fun product because it gets pretty geeky. Uh, but that's one of the uses of the I mentioned the NetOps Developers Kit. Pre-processing of streaming telemetry is one of the applications we're actually seeing customers gravitate toward. So, you know, you you could have some very low-level stat counters, and it's a Q depth or something like that that you want to monitor. You want to monitor it very often, but you don't want to create this massive volume of streaming telemetry coming off the box. So. That's a case where you could write an app that monitors whatever you want to monitor via the streaming telemetry within SR Linux and either pre-processes it to reduce the, the total data volume or actually has logic that you run in the switch that indicates you know, when you want to trigger uh, and then ultimately notify 
uh, FSP or some other system uh, that some action needs to be taken. So that's one of the cool use cases we've seen for the developer's kit. Oh man, my brain just exploded with like 15,000 different cool things you could do with that, uh, which I guess is kind of the point because whatever the app is that you're running on top of the network, you'll have all kinds of unique, interesting things that you might want to monitor and you can embed that and handle some of it on box. That's such a big deal because I was thinking as you were talking, streaming telemetry and all the data that comes out of the network is just such a nightmare to handle all of that stuff especially if you're of the mindset of, I want it all, I got to take it all, because you never know what data you're going to miss unless you take it all. And it's just not realistic to do that. Okay, so go back to your model, Steve, you you have some pre-processing happening on the box, you've got triggers that you can set, you're really cutting down on the data that you have to deal with off box and and graph and store and think about and, and whatever. It's, uh, again, kind of a big deal. It's, it's a big deal. And as an industry, there's been this mindset of, let's do streaming telemetry, we'll stick everything in a data lake and someday we'll figure out what to do with it. And hmm. that's been happening for years. And it's just doesn't, you, you never figure out what to do with it. You just collect all this data. Uh, and so we, I think we've done a better job with, with this uh, approach, uh, both enabling those dynamic applications on the box, you know, building tools like FSP to collect network wide information. Uh, and so you can kind of cut the data however you want and, and get the insights you need to ultimately drive automations. This comes back to our normal debate, Ethan, about what are you going to be cutting code for? If you've got a platform like FSP that's doing configuration, you've got the sandbox, you've got the telemetry, it's going to do the monitoring for you. You're going to be building code on top of that. You're not going to be building a copy of FSP. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's exactly the intent here and what we are we want to see our customers do, right, is mm-hmm. leverage the tools that we've built um, and extend them. That's why everything is incredibly open, right? You, you can run your own applications, you know, on the same Kubernetes cluster as FSP. You can run your own apps on, on the box within SR Linux. Uh, and, you know, our early customers are doing some applications. We think that really as this gets into more, um, you know, of the network designer's hands, um, that have some coding capabilities, we're going to find all sorts of cool applications for this. Uh, so we're pretty excited about it. It should be a lot of fun in the next few years. So Steve, in a typical engagement, um, does a customer roll out a fabric services platform and manage one gargantuan fabric that's kind of spread out, maybe a bunch of pods that are interconnected somehow? Or is it, I've got one fabric here and one fabric here and one fabric here and I manage them or are they all separate? How does that look? FSP itself is designed to scale out. So it, it will scale quite nicely. But to manage kind of the complexity you just highlighted, there's something we built into FSP we call Label Factory. And the basic idea is we use labels to manage the complexity. So examples of how you can use labels, you can basically assign labels to locations. So if you've got multiple data centers, and even maybe those data centers have multiple availability zones, multiple rows, multiple racks. So you can assign labels that indicate Um, all of that information, as well as potentially network roles, uh, leaf, spine, gateway, you know, management network, or anything else you can imagine as labels. And so when you're doing those network-wide configs and changes and programming, labels become quite powerful. You know, if I want to roll out a new version of the OS, but I want to start it with a specific availability zone, well, I've got a label that allows me to do that. It's built into FSP. It's a way to manage the complexity of the larger scale networks. Uh, one of the tools that we've we've created as part of the solution. Now, are these network roles that you've defined for me as Nokia, um, or are these arbitrary? 
You can make arbitrary labels for your particular environment. We have, of course, the ones that we'll use by default. Um, the obvious stuff, you know, row names, row numbers, rack names, rack numbers, that sort of stuff. Yeah, you can create labels for whatever you want. And that's another area of innovation that we expect to see some other cool stuff happening. We'll, we'll see how our customers use that over time. Yeah, you've blessed me and cursed me, Steve, because <laughs> if you bound it so I can only use those, then I'm then I'm forced to use those and I and I and I'm fairly sure to get it right. If you let me go wild, then uh <laughs> hey, okay team, we're gonna sit around the whiteboard this afternoon and come up with our label schema. And uh, no one shall <laughs> shall go away from the label schema. Only they will in about a week and then it, it devolves unless you really are good about it. <laughs> it takes more than a week to come up with a label schema. Come on. <laughs> it takes it takes a dozen Fair people enough. across five meetings. Yeah. Well, um, you know, we're 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 giving the tools to our customers, and they know what they're doing. And increasingly, you know, network mm -hmm. designers are becoming coders, and so we think they'll make great use of it. Now, you don't have to, of course, right? You can kind of just go back to the defaults, and and things will work. But that we just don't see that as the way things need to be done. You know, in the future, we really see that programming the network, if you really embrace that concept, you kind of have to give the tools and trust uh, the network builders that they know what they're doing. The ability to group things and, and act on the group and have uniformity of all the objects within the group is is absolutely crucial. I mean, and, and those of us have been operating networks for a long time have tried to do that anyway, where, hey, this is an access switch in a closet and it looks like this. This is a core switch in a data center and it looks like this. And you try to make everybody go same, same. So when you operate at scale, labels to me is just like an obvious way to help with all of that. Keep things organized, validate that you've got the configuration, the OS level, the services running, whatever it is that you're expecting to have in that kind of device. <laughs> sure, I was joking about it, but I think this, yeah. is, this, is a, this, this matters. Yeah, we'll use this. And, and by the way, I, there's something I... I didn't mention I got to get back to because our developers will, will kill me if I don't. Even the CLI that we've built is, is actually open and programmable. It's written in Python. If you want to write your own CLI commands, you can do that. So you can actually extend the CLI. It has a bunch of really cool features built in. When you watch you know, our, our engineers use the CLI, like auto-completion, of course, that's kind of table stakes, but it also predicts what's the next thing you're going to want to enter based on the config tree. And so it kind of gives you suggestions. It's almost like when you do a Google search and you type in two words and it says, oh, this is the next word you're going to be looking for. It does that sort of stuff. So re really cool stuff that they built into it. Sorts of things you can do with a newer operating system that you can't do with an old one. That's exactly sort of right. Yep. Now, another thing I noticed in the demos was that a lot of the software kind of looks familiar and it sort of suggested to me that you're, a lot of the telemetry and graphing is all open source tooling. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. There's a FSP is built on a bunch of open source tools. We use open source where we can, obviously. Mm. Um, you know, Linux itself is open source, so the the core of the OS is open source. Um, not in all cases. There are cases where you know perhaps the open source tools don't do exactly what we need, and we'll we'll build our own stuff. But uh, there's a lot of yeah. open source in uh, in FSP. Well, I think yeah. The point I was going to get at there is two things. Is two or three things about that. One is you're often comfortable with the way they look. You're used to looking at a certain set of open source tools and you know how to use them and you know how to leverage them, if that makes sense. Whereas in the old days, every vendor wanted to have their car. The way that we used to have it was this vendor would put the car on the right-hand side, this vendor would put it on the left-hand side, and just to be different, this vendor would put it on the roof, you know, sort of thing. Whereas if they all look the same, you can actually get to work faster and you can jump from site to site. As, you, as your career path, as you move from job to job, it's easier if everybody's on the same sort of thing. 
And the second aspect is if you're reusing existing proven technologies, then your credibility is actually higher. This is not a negative. This is a positive because leveraging proven code is exactly what I want as a customer. That's really, that's a really good point. Um, I'm going to incorporate that stuff into my pitch the next time. I like it. <laughs> I like it. I get, yeah, that's, that's good stuff. But yeah, you know, I, I, to be honest, I hadn't thought of it that way. Right? I always think of yeah. open source as we need to provide graphing so we can either write a graphing tool or use Grafana. Um, and you make a great point. You know, the choice to use Grafana is going to translate to a lot of our customers because they're familiar with yeah. that tool. So they get a tool yeah. that they know how to use. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, once you see it, you go like, oh, that's Grafana. I know that. And yeah. they've already packaged it for me. I don't have to go and get the code and compile it and install it, but I, I already know how to use Grafana because I've used it in this side and that side. And that's actually about day two again. I think pe people don't spend enough time thinking about that aspect, I don't think. But Steve, I got some questions about overall uh, architecture here. So um, I've got Fabric Services Manager. I assume it is hardware agnostic. It's really talking to SR Linux, and that's all it needs. Is that true? Yeah, that's correct. It, it's it's a uh, speaking via software interface. I mean, there's obviously some of the configurations will will be hardware dependent, but yes, it's hardware agnostic. Okay. SR Linux is essentially hardware agnostic as well, right? There's a hardware abstraction layer. Um, that is is there. So, you know, it can run on whatever chipsets we decide to use um, today and in future, you know, it will just port over and run no problem. Well, that, that was my next question then. Is this a bring your own switch sort of a thing where I need to supply a white box switch to run uh, Nokia SR Linux and Fabric Services platform? Or is there Nokia hardware as well that I could choose from? Yeah. So to, today it, it runs on on hardware that we supply, um, you know, the hardware is based on off-the-shelf chips, you know, Merchant Silicon. Um, it's kind of built in a white box approach in that you can, you basically can only boot um, SR Linux on the platform. So in theory, we could run this in a white box. I think what we found is that our customers aren't really asking for that for the most part. And the reason is the white box excitement in the industry, I, I think that it's, it was driven by a couple of things. I think first was a belief that, hey, if I go white box, I'll get cheaper boxes because I buy direct from the ODM. I don't have to deal with you know one of these vendors in the middle um, that just adds unnecessary cost. And for a lot of our customers, the, the feedback we actually get is, you know, one, they don't have the scale to manage the ODMs. If you ever dealt with the ODMs, they're they're designed to ship tens of thousands of units at a time. I mean, that's the kind of volume they want to do. So if you don't have that volume, you're going to basically get a switch design that's you know one of their base designs. You're not going to be able to really choose what you want. And it's going to be difficult to manage the supply chain, lead times, um, and, and little stuff that we found. You know, When you go from one switch to the next, you'll find, oh, they decided to change the controller chip. Yeah, I don't have a driver for that new controller chip, so I've got to write the driver. So our customer said, look, we don't want to deal with any of that. They demanded that the platform is open, and they basically said, look, I need it to be open. I need to be able to control it. I need to be able to run my own applications on it. But frankly, you know, I, I don't necessarily need to get uh, an ODM box uh, directly from the, the, the contract manufacturer. It doesn't matter what the box is as long as it's got the, the forwarding capacity that they're looking for. When, once you're past that, then that's not even interesting. What's really interesting is managing the thing, as you said, being open, being able to run your own apps on it, et cetera. I was going to say there's different types of open. Open might mean being able to choose any switch and any operating system and any software-defined networking controller, right? But there's another form of openness which says, I want to be able to write my own apps. I want to be able to use standardized interfaces. 
I want my software-defined controller to come from a vendor using their software on their switches, but all the pieces in it are open so that I can then make the integrations that I want. So instead of having to write my own SDN controller to get the openness that I want, which is the flexibility, because what we usually talk about with open is flexibility and choices, right? It's not normally the ability to download the source code or something like that. We want to download the source code so that we can make specific choices about how our business models work. But most of us, what we want is to be able to, where we need to, write a bit of code that does a little piece of magic. So a product like FSP, SR Linux, and the hardware from Nokia means they give me 80% of the solution and maybe I'm going to do the other 20% myself with some extra software and some development time. That sort of model, I think. Is that summarize it a little, perhaps? No, I think that's exactly right. And that circles back to where we started the conversation. You know, the question of what was missing that caused the web scalers to say, we're going to build our own OS. And it Mm. was exactly that openness, right? They they didn't have the ability to control, uh, manage and operate the network with their tools the way that they wanted. Um, and then trying to to coerce the vendors into providing the right interfaces, you end up with these bolt-ons, you end up with you know, running agents that aren't really first-class citizens on the system, limits what you can do. And they looked at all that and said, look, that's just not going to get it done. Yeah, there's open interfaces on the box. I can run an agent, um, but it's just not built to seamlessly integrate with my tool chains. Uh, and that's what we embraced here is said, hey, you know, do you really want to write your own BGP if you can get a BGP that just works out of the box and scales and, you know, it's super robust? Probably not. Um, But maybe you have other things you need to do and how you operate the network. You know, an example that you can do is there could be a a Linux patch that you're worried a security issue arises and you want to patch the kernel. In a traditional model, that means calling up your vendor that happens to use that version of Linux sort of as an embedded OS in the switch and then waiting for them to patch it. And then you, you you install the new version. With this approach, they can patch the kernel if they want. If it's a mm-hmm. critical issue, they can patch the kernel and it, it won't affect the, the software. So, yeah, I think you, again, I, I got to write down yeah. what you said because I think you did a fantastic <laughs> job in summarizing. <laughs> it's, just, it's just that open means different things to different people. One of the things that we often made the mistake of, Ethan, years ago when we first started embracing Whitebox was we thought that Whitebox was an infinite spectrum of choice, you know, being able to get access to the source code and running it on any box and anywhere, anytime. And then the hardware compatibility list began showing up and running on any box became a very different mm-hmm. thing than we thought it was going to be. And that's what we're seeing here. This FSP is a reaction to that. It's got standard APIs. It's modular. It's using Kubernetes and off-the-shelf tools. So it's going to be familiar for you. In a sense, Nokia has done a lot of the hard work for you in building an SDN package that you can take. And then down on the switch level, they've gone standardized. And when you read the white papers where they talk about the architecture of the segment routing and they talk about how the internal architecture, like even today, like a lot of uh, vendor software still has this kernel from 15 years ago and they just slapped a bit of a shim layer on top, uh, you know, put a GNMI or a RESTConf or a, a gRPC module on top of the old legacy and uh Woo, we, we support the API, tick in the box, win the tender, close the deal, get the hell out before they realize that we Windows 95'd it sort of thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> that is a cruel metaphor, sir. That is cruel. But yes, I, I get your point. Oh, yeah, yeah. But Windows 95 was sort of famous for that. It was Windows 3.11 kind of in, under the hood. And on top of it looked all really cool, but it was actually kind of rubbish underneath. And that's a viable argument. I find that sort of 
sales pitch, if you like, or, or that sort of protagonism, a viable argument, because I think that's a real thing. And, and, and by the way, you mentioned that, uh, you know, adding GNMI and model-based management to, you know, existing products. That was sort of a step on the journey for us because we we within SROS we went through exactly what you described. We needed to add model based management. That's what the customers were demanding and the kind of interfaces they wanted. That was a huge effort, by the way, um, a mm. massive, massive effort within SROS uh, to do that because we decided not to do it as a shim. We actually went into the code and and kind of made the various software uh, modules inside of SROS truly model oriented. That didn't extend all the way down into the OS layer in that case, uh, but that proved to be a huge benefit as we built SR Linux. Because when we started to port that software over, you know, our BGP, well, we already had a model-based BGP because we had done the hard work in SROS uh, to get that right. So now it plugs into SR Linux and just works beautifully. But uh, yeah, it's a very good point. Well, Steve, this has been a fantastic and interesting conversation. I love talking about this stuff. Uh, a data center is still, you know, I, I love campus networks and enterprise networks and data center networks. They're just they're just near to my heart. And so how these fabrics have evolved and how you manage them in a modern way, it's just always fascinating conversation. So give us some parting thoughts, man. What do you want to leave the audience with as they leave this podcast? Well, thank you as well for the conversation. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. Um, in terms of parting comments, you know, this has been... This has been a journey for us. You know, we've been working on this for a couple of years now. We're very excited to to finally get this announced, and working by the way with some very big lead customers. You know, we actually uh, cooperated pretty closely with Apple. Uh, they're now rolling out SR Linux in production uh, in one of their data centers. It's not just uh, cool stuff; it's actually available. Um, we're really excited to uh, you know to engage with the broader community here, and we think we've got some great tools that can help you build kick-ass networks. Apple, like $2 trillion Apple, that that Apple. And do they know you just said that? Uh, yeah, they know we said that. It's, uh, it was in our press release as part of the announcement. So it is public. That's not common for them, by the way. They don't like to talk about um, you know who their suppliers are. But uh, in this case, they were willing to do it. It was a pretty, pretty close cooperation. Yeah. In the prep, I had to ask you twice. Because it's that is kind of a very big deal. They never talk about it. Yeah. We know. Very, very yeah. rare. Well, our thanks to Nokia for joining us today. And if you want to dig into this more, there are a lot of links that will be in the show notes at packetpushers.net. You can go up there. You can look in your podcatcher. Uh, a lot of the notes from the show end up in your podcatcher as well. Uh, Nokia's got a lot of information on these products, SR Linux and Fabric Services platform. I watched and read lots and lots and lots of them in preparation for the show. And they're very well done and very well produced. You'll be glad you went up and read them. All those links again on the show notes at packetpushers.net. Again, our special thanks to Nokia for sponsoring today's episode of Heavy Networking because uh, our sponsors, they make you that are listening, they make you aware of products you didn't know about. And they make it easy for you to keep up with the industry and they make it possible for us to do what we do here on the Packet Pushers Podcast Network. And by the way, we are more than just podcasts. We're also a newsletter and technical blog articles and a community Slack group and a YouTube channel. And that's all aimed at your professional career development. Find it all at packetpushers.net. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.